Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Gage. Gage is a free and open source test automation tool by ThoughtWorks with a goal of taking the pain out of test automation for acceptance tests. To help with this, Gage supports specifications and markdown, which are easy to read and easy to write. Reusable specifications to simplify your code, which makes refactoring easier and less code means less time maintaining your code. And finally, integration. Use Gage with your favorite tools and IDEs in the ecosystem of your choice, like Selenium and Sahi Pro, CI and CD tools like GoCD, Jenkins, Travis, and IDE support for Visual Studio, VS Code, IntelliJ, and more. Head to gage.org slash jsparty to learn more and give it a try. Once again, gage.org slash jsparty. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. Hello, party people. Welcome to JS Party, where we are throwing a party about JavaScript every week. I'm K-Ball. I'm your host for this episode, and I am joined by two about-to-have-new-baby expectant fathers. Jared, how you doing? Yay. Hello. Doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. So I think you're the, the going to have the first edition because you were saying it's any day now. Yeah, we're on baby watch. Any day mode, which means if I drop this call suddenly and leave y'all, you know exactly why. And then we have Nick Nisi. You've got another couple months, yeah? Uh, Yeah, we're at 31 weeks, but my daughter was born at 33. So we're pretty much in the any day now if I go by that scale. Okay. And remind me, will that be your second or your third? Yep, second. Second. Okay. Because I was thinking, uh, we were talking about how Jared's got enough to field a basketball team. Uh, between right. the three of us, we're getting awfully close to a soccer team. <laughs> okay. Well, you just need to move to Nebraska and we can actually put that team on the field there. Okay, ball. There we go. All right. So talking <laughs> JavaScript. Change the subject. <laughs> yeah, change the, change the subject. I don't want to get out to Nebraska. I don't have any family there. That's true. Uh, that's the only complaint about Nebraska. Seriously. There you go. Uh, Honestly, it's not for everyone. Yeah. That's our new motto, right? That is. <laughs> Nebraska, it's not for everyone. That's, yeah, some genius. It, sadly, the, it is. In our government decided that that should be Nebraska's new motto. So it You're actually is. You're not kidding. Wow. Uh, okay, we're not that's... kidding, unfortunately, although I, I don't tell anybody that, but Nick seems to just be, <laughs> are you cool with it, Nick? Uh, I, no, <laughs> but there's no point in keeping it a secret. <laughs> All right. So I, I do, I don't think I've ever actually been to Nebraska. So I do need to make it out there at least once for like Nebraska JS or something like that. But that's right. Um, if that can transition us over to actual JavaScript uh, for JS Party, we actually had a really busy week this last week. A lot of stuff going on in the JavaScript world, um, or last week or two. Um, the first thing that we're going to talk about was is the event stream hack. Now, uh, if you haven't heard about it, um, you should look it up. Uh, Nick or Jared, do you want to break down what happened there? Uh, so there is a very popular package that hasn't been maintained in a couple of years called EventStream. Um, and it gets about 
what was it? 2 million, almost 2 million downloads a day. Uh, but it hasn't been updated in, in a while, uh, because the original maintainer, uh, doesn't use it anymore. And, uh, really isn't under any obligation to continue working on it if he doesn't want to. And so he handed over, um, control of it to someone who asked, uh, who emailed him and asked if they could take over the project and work on it. And they, they did. And they made a few innocuous commits that improved things, didn't really do much. And then they added another library called, uh, and I'm losing it. Was it file stream? Flat map stream. Flat map stream. stream. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, flat map stream. They added that for about a week and then removed that and then added the functionality that flat map stream provided uh, on its own. But the problem was that flat map stream, uh, flat map stream had, uh, only one committer and was very new, only very few downloads. And so it was a very suspect package, uh, that would go in and, um, it had a whole lot of encrypted stuff in there to try and subvert like code checkers and things. Uh, but it would look for another app called, or another module called, uh, I think copay really should have all these names in front of me. And if you had that running copay dash, uh, if you had that also installed, then it would go in there, which is a, uh, that's a Bitcoin wallet platform. It would go in and, uh, try and steal all of your Bitcoins. If you didn't have that, it would just silently catch an error and do nothing. So for a majority of people, this didn't really do anything, but if it was installed, uh, next to copay dash, then it would, um, try and steal Bitcoins. Is that kind of the, the main gist of it? I think that yeah, covers so it pretty well. High level, a code injection via malicious package. There was some pretty interesting stuff about how they obfuscated it. You know, the, the malicious code was never visible in GitHub, but was uh, pushed up in the published NPM package. Um, they've eventually tracked it down. I think I was reading something that indicates, or from NPM, indicating the actual target was uh, the copay release process. So it wasn't that if you were running this in one of your projects and doing things, it was necessarily doing things. But when the uh, copay project did a build script, um, they were trying to get this injected in there. So then it would harvest account details, whatever. And copay has uh, confirmed that this malicious code was deployed on a set of versions from 5.0.2 to 5.1.0. So as far as we know, it doesn't impact anyone who's not using a built version of copay or building it themselves doing that. Um, You know, if you're using something else and you happen to have copay installed, but it's a version outside of that, you're probably fine. Uh, But yeah, kind of an interesting, uh, challenge and something to think about in terms of both the JavaScript world, but also just package management in general and how we deal with this stuff. Yeah. To me, the most interesting aspect of this is the fact that it was a social engineering vector that was used successfully in order to accomplish. Well, we don't know what was, uh, if the actual specific target was compromised, but we know that the, uh, the malware was deployed successfully to everybody who would be downloading that version of uh, event stream from npm and we haven't really seen this before at least not ever caught in the wild where the the method of uh getting your malicious code is basically asking for permission from a maintainer who is no longer maintaining um and finding a popular library that's still used by millions but is 
I wouldn't say it's in disrepair, but it's just in uh, maintenance mode or even non-maintenance mode and just offering to take it over. And that was, you know, 100% effective in this case. And, um, you know, you know, historically looking at hacks, a lot of these things are most often just asking people to <laughs> for their passwords or for access to the thing versus going in against our technical, you know, uh, firewalls and constraints that we put in in order to protect these things. So to me, that was uh, the most interesting thing about this. And so uh, Do Dominic Tarr was the maintainer of the event stream package, the original creator of it. And uh, he was the maintainer of it until he handed over the keys to this malicious user who on GitHub was right nine control. If you go back and read through uh, all the issues and whatnot, very interesting. Definitely uh, think that's worth a read even now. But, you know, Dominic basically wasn't maintaining it and right nine control asked for, for permissions and that's what they got. And so that's, that's interesting, especially since we have, you know, historically this idea of, you know, we have copycat in the case of like murders, you know, you have people who like do the same thing when they see it successful or they see it get news. I think a lot of these, you know, mass shootings, a lot of them are copycats saying, oh, that person had their moment in the sun. And so I'm going to do the same thing. Here we have an ex a successful kind of a new method of infiltration via offering to maintain or trying to find their way into the maintenance of a popular package. And I wonder if the copycats are going to come out now after this has happened. Yeah. And I was wondering if this seemed like a copycat of a, an article on Hacker Noon, um, probably a few months ago, probably earlier this year. Uh, yeah. Called I'm harvesting credit card numbers and passwords from your site. Here's how. And it detailed a lot of the same tricks that were used here. Uh, but at the end it said, this was just a joke, but you can't tell because this could totally happen. And mm -hmm. it does seem like this is something that, that is happening. That's interesting. Potentially that's the case. Um, an interesting tidbit. So we, we did have Dominic on the changelog. Uh, we interviewed him uh, yesterday, which by the time this ships will be a few days ago, it'll come out next week, but we got kind of the inside scoop and what, what really exacerbated this issue in terms of bringing it up, uh, into the light was the fact that, uh, right nine control asked for permission to basically take over maintenance of event streamer offered that to Dominic back in September and Dominic gave, uh, you know, gave right nine control the keys and then a few weeks later, Dominic had this, I don't know, he called it kind of a cathartic moment of purging his access to all these old repos. So you have to understand that Dominic Tarr, the creator of EventStream, is a prolific open source contributor. He has like 600 source repos on GitHub. He has, at this point, about 400 NPM modules, like packages on NPM that he creates and deploys. And uh, previous to that September moment, he had like 700 and he, you know, a lot of those aren't maintained. They're just old things that he's moved on from event streaming created about seven years ago and has even created a few uh, rewrites of event streaming, which he thinks are better ideas, different ways of doing it. And so he doesn't even, he doesn't use event stream. He doesn't uh, tell people to use event stream. He has newer ideas of, of what, how you should handle these kind of functionality. And he actually, back in September, after he'd given right nine control, the access, he went and basically deep sixed all of his access to these NPM modules that he didn't want to maintain. So he couldn't even log in to NPM to yank the package. And so if you look at the, 
uh, GitHub issue, which we'll have in our show notes. The fellow who found this all was called Falling Snow. Ayrton Sparling's his real name, a computer science major at CSUF. He opened the issue about nine days ago, having found the malicious flat map stream and was asking, you know, what's going on here? And he kind of laid out the, his findings. And at that time, Dominic comes in uh, later and says, note, I no longer have published rights to this module on NPM. So it probably could have been something that was handled quickly and quietly in terms of remediation. Like Dominic could have just yanked that module and then made an announcement, you know, after the fact. But he had removed his own access from all these NPM modules. And so he had no control whatsoever. And so it had to kind of bubble up through the community. And ultimately, NPM Inc. went ahead and did the yanking. Yeah. And according to their blog, they have ownership of it now, at least for now. It's really... You know, what's interesting um, on a number of dimensions, so this is, you know, some folks brought up, this is more of a sort of open source software and package management problem than a JavaScript problem. But I feel like it is exacerbated in the JavaScript community because we have this tendency to use so many packages and so many small packages. Right. Uh, I, I remember in the Ruby world, there was a movement towards like, kill your dependencies, reduce the number of additional dependencies you have. Um, and if you're publishing a package, try your best to not import lots of other ones because of kind of this problem of, you know, the more dependencies you have, the more, you know, steps there are where things can be broken, things can get injected that you don't expect, all these other pieces. Uh, you know, JavaScript world, like I install a new view app from the view CLI and it plugs in a thousand different packages. That's a very large surface area. Which makes it more difficult for you to monitor, vet, keep upgraded, et cetera, as the end user of those packages. So I, I do think it's exacerbated. I mean, the more dependencies you have and the more transitive dependencies you have, the harder it is for you to uh, stay on top of these things. And as the end user of the software, right, as the developer who pulls these dependencies in, you basically own all of that code. You are responsible for it. The buck stops with you with regards to the ramifications of problems, right? No one's going to say, oh, oh, Jared, don't worry about that hack that happened to us because it, you didn't write that line of code, right? Somebody else did. Uh, in business scenarios, the buck stops where the person who made that decision to pull it in uh, decided. And I mean, JavaScript is not the only community that pulls in lots of dependencies. Um, but I do think just the, the sheer number of packages and the small functionality in each one which is kind of the Unix philosophy. So, I mean, I get it, but it definitely makes it a huge surface area to attack. Do you think that library authors should maybe be more cognizant of that? Because it seems like I've, I had never heard of EventStream and I had never heard of LeftPad from back in the past, but because every big library tended to be using LeftPad in that case or uh, EventStream, 2 million downloads, uh, I, it, it now does fall on me. So do you think that they should be more wary about adding in dependencies and maybe just implementing their own solutions to things? I think so, but it's hard to tell them that, <laughs> you know, right. it's hard, it's hard to make those decisions on others behalf. I don't know their context. I'm not sure. And by the way, event stream used by electron, um, a, a few other very large projects. And even though it was a seven year old library that the author no longer recommends using. So I think everybody should be more aware of it. I think, I think, Events like these bring these kind of decision making to the consciousness of the developer community. And I think that probably will have positive 
ramifications. I know that uh, there's in my life, there's been a bit of a process with regards to dependencies where I moved from very dependency heavy or like always look for a solution online first, right? Always find a third party package first, um, mostly because I didn't have the skills to produce what I was trying to. Mm-hmm. And so in that case, you're just trying to get something done, right? So I'm going to pull in somebody else's code because I actually don't have the skills to write that code. And then uh, as I gain skills and experience over time, moving away from doing that to uh, being more critical with which dependencies I pull in and uh, really have to, you know, really weighing the ROI of is this worth all of the baggage that it brings with it. And so, you know, you kind of have these two extremes. You have the not invented here syndrome, which basically says, I'm going to write every single line of code. And if I didn't invent it, I'm not going to use it. And we see where that can be problematic and bad. And then on the other hand, you have what turns into dependency hell, which is like, I'm basically just gluing together everybody else's code to get a job done. I don't have very much code my own. And with most things, I think the, the, the prudent decisions are somewhere in the middle, but it's difficult to tell other people that as well as you're just learning it for yourself. I think as a community, we're starting to talk a lot more about these kind of ramifications of the proliferation of open source. And, you know, I think we've gone from a a world where open source was this kind of cool thing that happened on the edges to something that is embedded deeply into essentially every software base in the world. And our institutions are totally catching up. We have no idea, you know, this type of stuff is happening all the time with LeftPad and this. And I think you know, that's why NPM is indu- introducing things like NPM audit. Um, you know, we probably need to add some level of allowing a maintainer to, or, or figuring out how to better encourage maintainers when they have put something onto maintenance or no maintenance mode to indicate that in a way that NPM can then pick up. So that, for example, when Electron does a build, NPM audit could say, hey, you know, not only are you running you know, these packages which have been found to be insecure, but you're running these packages which have been found to be unmaintained uh, or some other way of letting people know that. Um, I think we also need, you know, some way to uh, transfer those packages into, you know, organizations or foundations that can support them over time. Um, You know, because the individual maintainers, like depending on unpaid maintainers to do all this doesn't scale. And when we've got, you know, critical financial i mean in this case i mean i have mixed feelings on bitcoin but this is essentially an attack on a financial institution in a lot of ways right um Mm -hmm. for certain definitions of the word institution (laughs) right but you have you have (laughs) critical financial software depending on code released by a maintainer who you know clearly writes tons and tons of code and kind of transiently publishes things which is cool like there's that's a really cool thing but it's not the type of thing that a financial institution understands or is able to deal with. Right. And the transitive dependency issue is, is I think the biggest one is like, you don't even know who wrote that thing because you didn't pull that dependency in. As, as Nick said, you, maybe you pulled in Vue and Vue pulled it in. Or maybe Vue pulled in a library that pulled it in. Or Vue pulled in a library that pulled in a library that pulled in a library that pulled it in. Because <laughs> exactly. just, it it's, goes it's pack- forever. It's packages all the way down. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely... As, ma- as open source uh, developers and as, as maintainers and people that care about these things, really from the creation side and less the consumption side. By the way, also more insight on Dominic. He's prolific. He's also a hobbyist in many ways. And so um, he likes writing code for fun. He throws it up there. He does open source because it's fun. 
And he says, this wasn't fun anymore. And there's zero value for me to maintain it over time. And so the system in that regard broke because somebody who has stake in the game needs to either maintain that or pay somebody to maintain that, which wasn't happening, which is why he so freely gave over the access when somebody who offered. But yeah, we need we need best practices. We need better tooling around how do you transfer maintenance? Like how do you mark something as abandoned or deprecated or finished? And then how do you pass the torch on in a way that doesn't subvert other people's expectations? I mean, it makes me think of it in the real world. You know, we have yet we have restaurants and a restaurant can be poorly managed and it goes into disrepair and say, nobody goes there anymore because the food's bad or whatever. And then somebody else buys that restaurant and then they put up a big sign that says now under new management, you know, and that's an indicator to say, okay, you know, this is, things are going to change. But when your dependencies go under new management, there's no sign, there's no notice. How do I know that a malicious actor or even just somebody who I don't trust, maybe I trusted Dominic Tarr with EventStream, but he's passed the torches on to somebody else. And that's somebody I don't know. They don't have a history. I don't trust them necessarily. And how do I be notified that things have changed, you know, underneath the seams? This episode is brought to you by our friends at Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com slash changelog. Move fast and fix things like we do here at Changelog. Catch your errors before your users do with Rollbar. If you're not using Rollbar yet or you haven't tried it yet, they have a special offer for you. Go to rollbar.com slash changelog. Sign up and integrate Rollbar to get $100 to donate to open source projects via Open Collective. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. All right, so coming back to things, we could talk about event stream and implications for open source for forever, but that's going to be something that's talked about on the change log, on all sorts of different things. Like this is going to be an ongoing conversation for a while. So let's move on to something else that happened in the JavaScript world just now, which was the state of JavaScript survey for 2018 was released. And it was released. It had some interesting and controversial data. And then there started to be a little bit of backlash against it uh, in a number of different parts of the community talking about uh, how perhaps the practices used and the sort of transparency of how they were used were not so good. So I think we should talk both about what is the survey? What did it say? And then maybe talk a little bit about some of that backlash and uh, kind of assess like what is the quality of this survey and what should we, you know, should we be believing these various surveys that are published? So uh, anybody want to start with what is the survey? So it was a survey that um, I don't remember how I found out about it, probably from Twitter, Um, but it it was going around. I think this is their third or fourth year doing it. uh, And they got over 20,000 responses. And so they just asked questions about things like demographics, pay, connections, uh, the types of JavaScript that you use, frameworks, uh, and what you're interested in, testing, things like that. And then laid all of that out. But they they asked the questions in uh, a way of like naming something and then you can respond with, I've heard of it uh, and I'm, I have heard of it, but I'm not interested in it. I've heard of it, but I would like to learn it. Uh, I've used it and I would use again, or I've used it and I would not use again. 
And so it gave some pretty interesting results, and especially when being able to compare to the previous years. Do you want to highlight some of those interesting notes? Um, well, probably the most interesting to me uh, was the TypeScript one. Uh, and they asked about that and its <laughs> popularity. And uh, it has grown uh, over the years. So I think that the, the number, it said like 46% have used it and would use it again or are currently using it. Yes, 46.5%. Uh, so that is a huge number. And that does align with what um, Lori Voss has said in his um, NPM in the future of JavaScript talk. And so that's uh, very interesting to see that much adoption of TypeScript so quickly. Absolutely. Another one of the things that I uh, saw a lot of discussion about was it uh, contained some pretty negative results about AngularJS uh, or mm-hmm. Angular broadly. Uh, which is actually kind of interesting combined with TypeScript because they were one of the first to really embrace TypeScript deeply. Um, but there was uh, more people saying they've used Angular and would not use it again than those who are using it and would use it again, uh, which is pretty, you know, especially when you compare to some of the other frameworks, um, Vue or React is pretty negative uh, in terms of response. I think the negative responses were uh, over 60% if you combine those two. Yeah. So yeah, between heard of it, not interested and used it, would not use again is over 60%. Um, So that obviously resulted in some folks kind of starting to pick at this and ask questions. And I think, um, you know, particularly because those numbers are pretty different from numbers that showed up in another 2018 uh, survey, which was the Stack Overflow survey. Uh, Stack Overflow also, you know, did a, a survey about frameworks, libraries, and tools. And they, you know, obviously it's a different community. They've got some JavaScript folks, some not JavaScript folks. Uh, but they found that Angular was actually used by far more people than React or some of these others. So that's uh, pretty different. And so the question starts to become like, what is different? Like, how do we figure out, you know, if, if you've got such disparate surveys or disparate results coming from two different surveys, like what's going on here? What is going on here, Kevin? Um, I don't know, but I, I did find... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought you were about uh, to do a big reveal. No, 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 I don't know. Um, well, part of why I don't know is in particular, the state of JavaScript survey doesn't publish anything about how they collected their data. Like there's nothing on there. There's nothing about like we did this. I mean, I think my intuition based on what I saw is they tweeted stuff and got stuff retweeted and people found it through Twitter. Uh, but there's no info on how they collected it. Um, there's no info on who to, you know, necessarily how to do questions, things like that. So um, when I started looking into this and asking questions, somebody pointed me to a talk uh, by Mel Sumner um, at EmberConf. Uh, and she was talking about surveys and reproduction of data, and she kind of walked through this process of how do you think about a survey. So I, I kind of jotted down notes from that. I do recommend going and, and seeing it, and there'll be a link in the show notes, because um, she does a way better job than I'm going to. Um, but I think it's worth sort of walking through the process that she lines out there. So she highlights that, you know, when you look at a survey like this, there's a big frontline number. You know, 50% of people who do X use Y. Uh, in this case, you know, maybe it's, Let's see, state of JavaScript, React. Um, 60% of people who use React, or who, 64% of people use React 
and would use it again. And 60% of people are not interested in using Angular, right? These are big headline numbers and they uh, make a lot of splash. Uh, but mm -hmm. there's something that's being kind of left out there, which is, well, 50% of the people who responded to this survey who do front-end development use React or you know, 60% or whatever the numbers are. Uh, that responded to this survey leads to some additional questions like how many people responded to the survey? How representative mm -hmm. were they? Uh, are they of the broader population? Um, and to answer those questions, you need to know how the data was collected. So 20,000 people is pretty good. That seems like a lot of people. Um, how many people do we think do JavaScript? More. Millions? NPM has some numbers on this, yeah? Like NPM did their own survey. But um, yeah, probably millions. So this is a pretty small percentage. That's not necessarily bad, right? Like you can have representative uh, with small sample sizes. That's what polling is. You know, all this political polling that we've just gotten over, like that's all based right. on the idea that you can create representative samples. Um, but all of those polls do a bunch of work to adjust for the demographics of the population, right? They take a sample and then they say, okay, we're gonna, we got these answers and we've mapped the people who answered it to these buckets. And we know this about the population of people broadly. So we're going to adjust those numbers based on, you know, like there's a lot of science that goes into that. Um, so when you've got a survey like this, you kind of want to know like, how does those people that they collected, how did they find them and how did they relate them to the actual population of people who do JavaScript? And there's nothing. Like they don't say anything about that. Like Stack Overflow at least published like, it's people who are members of our site and we've got all these demographic info and like, here's how you split up. And there is demographic stuff here, but if we look at the yeah. demographics, it doesn't feel very uh, likely to be representative. <laughs> yeah, it, the demographics that they show are split out by countries, right? So they said this year we reached developers in 153 countries. The U.S. dominates with 24%, but Germany and Australia are both well represented with over 5% respondents each. So that's the really geographic breakdown. The gender breakdown is, this is showing like who took the survey, but it doesn't really show how they went about selecting or, or, or targeting certain audiences to take the survey. And so, um, yes, you might have some confirmation bias if, if the main source of the survey is the people who put the surveys on you know, Twitters and their, you know, the retweets that those are going to reach, it's going to be highly correlated with the groups of people that it actually ends up reaching. It reminds me of bringing the Bitcoin conversation back in. It reminds me of a, a poll I saw on Twitter a few days ago. I think it was uh, not Rand Paul, who, Ron Paul, you know, the libertarian uh, political figure in America was, you know, tw asking millennials like what kind of currency they care about. And it was like, the dollar, Bitcoin, et cetera, bonds, like what would they, what would they value? And Bitcoin was really highly represented. And it's like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because libertarians tend to value Bitcoin more than the general population. And so that's not a very scientific poll. Of course, it's just a Twitter poll. And so um, that potentially could be the case here when we don't know, there's not printed how they went about reaching these people beyond what we can assume that they you know reached outside of their you know, influence zone or, or friend zone it is interesting to think about like all right so the three authors who said they are you know doing this and they're they're probably going to tweet about it and they say this thing about the team and here's the people sasha Raphael, michael 
be sure to check out my React GraphQL JavaScript library, Raphael's React data visualization library, and this JavaScript library directory. Um, <laughs> it sounds a little bit like the audience of folks who are likely to have found this survey might have been particularly React focused, which might make result in particularly positive reviews for React. And it looks like maybe particularly negative reviews for Angular. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. Angular is also a very popular, presumably a very popular framework in the enterprise. And maybe a lot of enterprise developers uh, aren't on Twitter or weren't somehow otherwise targeted by this uh, and didn't get, get to see this beforehand. And the thing is, we don't know, right? Like we yep. have no way to to test because there's not published of how they found the folks, how they normalized right. for it. Um, you know, we can sort of look at other results that are happening in the industry, like the Stack Overflow so study, which has its own issues, but sort of ask like, is this, are these results being reproduced in others or not? Um, we can look at, you know, who did the study and like, what are their motivations likely to be? Are they likely to be motivated to, uh, or maybe not motivated, you know, assuming best will, but like, are they likely to be reaching out to folks who have particular slants or opinions? Um, you know, all of this is, is kind of like, if it's just for fun, who cares? But this is being published as like, this is the state of JavaScript. People are going to be making decisions on this. And it's uh, you know, a little spotty mm. and, and probably quite biased. Well, even just in the fact that it's put on, you know, it's created by three JavaScript developers and, and not statisticians or, you know, professional survey takers who understand, I wouldn't know how to put out a good survey. And, and putting out a good survey is very difficult to do, even if you know the means and mechanisms. So, um, you know, they probably were disadvantaged in the first place. And let me just say that, that the name of it, the state of JavaScript, of course, gives it a lot of credence, right? But also, to their credit... The website is spectacular and very well made and enjoyable. And it makes the thing seem more, have more clout because of how well it's done. It's been done for multiple years, 20,000 respondents. Like it seems very legit. And that's because they did a very good job of putting it together. So credit to, to all three on that behalf, especially Sasha Grief, who I think to the design. I just think it's very well done. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to be said for this and I don't want to necessarily like say, I don't, I don't think the folks doing the survey are trying to be malicious. Um, however, they're also pretty clearly not following best practices for surveys and then trying to sell this thing as representing the entire JavaScript community. I'm over here trying to figure out exactly how many JavaScript developers are there in the world. I'm still stuck. <laughs> I've been trying to find that. I'm like, my Googles are failing me. Uh, on the topic of Angular, again, I wonder if... Uh, like. The biggest dissatisfaction or most disliked aspect of Angular is that it's too bloated and complex. And I wonder if that's because it's, it is a more full-featured framework and therefore has a larger learning curve than something like React that is primarily focused on, on the view. Yeah, it's a good question, right? Like if you look at a... I mean, well, Vue kind of strikes a, a middle ground there, right? Like Vue yeah. bakes in more things than React does. And Vue is still highlighting pretty well there. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, my impression of job, of Angular is it is much more complex. Uh, certainly has a much bigger learning curve. That whether that's a positive or a negative varies on what your requirements are. Like complex requirements often need complex solutions. I have also noticed uh, that sometimes the React community and and I'm I'm now going under the assumption that like 
this survey, call it the state of JavaScript, but this is state of JavaScript opinions in the React community is my current assumption of what this is. Um, they tend to have very strong opinions that are not necessarily aligned with the rest of the JavaScript world. Um, you know, the CSS and JS uh, nexus is all in the React world. The um, There's a lot of you know, and there's a lot of good things that have come out of the React world, but there, there's a lot of uh, sort of insular, very, very um, kind of weird for the front end stuff that comes out of the React world. Mm. Yeah. That may be influencing all of this uh, result, right? Like that's that that particular community tends to to be sort of off doing its own thing in a lot of ways. And it does really seem like React is taking over in a lot of ways, but it this is a good reminder that uh, that there is more to JavaScript than React. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean, the simplest cloud platform for developers and teams. Deploy, manage, scale faster and more efficiently on DigitalOcean. Managing infrastructure is easy for teams, whether you're running one virtual machine or thousands. Use our special link to get $100 credit for DigitalOcean and try it today for free. Head to do.co slash changelog. Once again, do.co slash changelog. All right, coming back. We can't just kvetch about vulnerabilities and uh, survey quality and all that all day. We got to give you something fun to work with. So we're going to do a segment that we do every now and then called Pro Tips. Uh, we talk about some of our tips that we have. Uh, whether they are code related, JavaScript related, or just life related, um, that make our lives better and that might make your life better. Um, so let's start actually call out to Jared. Jared, what are your pro tips you want to share? Very good. Well, I just have one pro tip and it's kind of a, a mushy one. It's not like a, uh, a 100% go do this and you will be successful, but it's really about being intentional with testing. And there's you know, we could do shows and shows and there's could be entire podcasts about testing and the ins and outs and how much to do it, how little to do it, what's worth it, what's not. In my career, uh, I've spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. <laughs> As I've been told everything, you know, you have the uh, the full test coverage people that like TDD or die types. And then you you find other people on who've never written a test case in their life. And so are basically manually testing their code instead of having any sort of automated testing. And so I guess the pro tip for me is to um, is to be intentional with the test that you are writing and to really be critical and think through the process of which tests are worth it and which tests are not worth it. And so uh, there's a good way of doing that, which I tend to think things uh, in economic terms more and more lately uh, and using thoughts like ROI, like what's the return on my investment of doing this test versus not doing this, and then analyzing whether or not I should write that test uh, based on what I determine is the ROI and is it worth it to write the test. There's a great article um, which I put on Changelog News recently called Lean Testing or Why Unit Tests Are Worse Than You Think, written by uh, Eugene Kiss, and we'll link to that in the show notes. A great write-up about how he thinks of testing and how he advocates for an economic perspective towards testing, and that leads him to deciding that of the three major test types, 
which are at the very low level unit tests, which are isolated and uh, single use and focused on a specific bit of code versus uh, integration tests, which are uh, multi-module or multi-class, or they're testing the seams in between code, how they integrate together. And then finally, acceptance tests, which is the highest level driving the browser, for instance, and making sure that the website actually works the way that you designed it. Uh, each of those have a different ROI. Some are worth it in certain cases. Some are not worth it in other cases. And uh, he goes through his decision making on that. And so my pro tip would be to think about these things and read that article and decide for yourself when a test is actually uh, worth the effort put into it. He does have a takeaway. Uh, if you want to be lazy and just, you know, follow Eugene's advice, he says, if you desire clear, albeit unnuanced instructions, which there's a pro tip right there, clear and unnuanced. He says, here's what you should do. Use a typed language, focus on integration and end-to-end -end tests. Use unit tests only where they make sense, as in pure algorithmic code with complex corner cases. And then he finishes with be economic and be lean. And I think that's pretty good advice uh, that I follow sometimes, but definitely worth thinking about. I will link up that article for you to read it. And yeah, think about your tests, y'all. There's kind of an interesting thing related to that, uh, which has to do with sort of thinking about the phase of project you're in. Uh, mm. Tests tend to, much like actually a conversation that we had, um, I think we published in an interview um, with uh, Chantastic, Michael Chan, talking about how dry code tends to sort of ossify and be harder to, to change. Um, deep tests and lots of unit tests tends to like make it harder to change your code. So when you're in a place where code is changing very rapidly, maybe um, you know requirements are fluid or you're still figuring out the domain, uh, too much testing can slow you down a lot and have a very low ROI. Um, and then as your code base matures and your that area of the code you know tends to be more constant, uh, higher levels of testing can actually be really helpful because then that lets you make sure that you don't unintentionally introduce changes now that this is supposed to be mostly static. So I think there's that dimension of ROI is going to vary by where sort of code and project maturity as you go along. I believe that's absolutely the case and a very good point. Uh, one other thing he points out was specifically with unit tests, because the thing about unit tests is they're often the easiest to write and they should be. Um, and many TDDDists and uh, other people who are unit test you know, pros will claim that uh, making your code unit testable will necessarily improve its quality, will absolutely make it uh, higher quality code because uh, the test is the first user for that code. And so if the test is difficult to write and run, then the code is poorly factored. Um, I find that to be the case sometimes. So again, it's one of those uh, it depends types of things. But one of the things that Eugene says is that many arguments and some empirical evidence in favor of that claim exist. And so on the other side of it, he says that unit tests will ossify or you know make it more brittle or hard structured, the internal structure of the code, which is what you don't really want. But speaking to what you said there, K-Ball, especially in the early stages, right? When it's in that, that initial, you're molding it, you're changing it, it's really churning. Uh, having tests against the internal structure, especially poorly written ones, uh, will actually you know, have a negative ROI. They'll, they'll slow you down, but later on they'll speed you up. So yeah, it's all, it's all very wishy-washy, which is really why really the advice from me is to just consider these things and be critical of the way you're going about building software 
instead of just doing it the way you've always done it or the way somebody else tells you to. Sweet. All right, Nick, how about you? Pro tips? Uh, yeah. So there's, um, this one will be a little more ingrained, I guess. Uh, but it's, this is a really cool tip that I got from Corey Frang, uh, when I went to a Boston JS meetup years ago, but it's something that I use quite a lot and it's a, uh, get alias. Well, two of them actually, uh, one's called PR and the other one's called PR clean. And I'll add a link to the show notes for it, but you can basically add this to your Git config. And then you can just say, get PR 74. And that will pull down the code that is associated with that pull request on GitHub. And you'll have it there locally to test and play with. And then you can, uh, look at it, test it, run it, um, commit to it. And it'll go back up to that branch or you can just throw it away. And that's what the PR clean command does is it just goes through each of those commands that start with, or each of those branches that start with PR slash whatever number, it will just clean all of those up. So you don't have them lingering around forever, but it's just a really cool handy tip for dealing with pull requests uh, and being able to run and test the code locally. Does it work with non GitHub remotes like GitLab or Bitbucket? It does. I, well, I don't know. He cracks open the code as he tries to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> I am looking at the code and I, I don't know how Bitbucket or GitLab reference that. If it's like ref slash pull requests slash whatever. Yeah, it then... depends on, well, GitLab calls them merge requests. So I'm guessing it's different there. So you might have to modify that function in order to how it, let it work for different kind, styles of URLs. Yeah, but you can also specify like if you uh, normally have your origin set to your fork, you can specify uh, an upstream branch or an upstream repo to pull from instead because your PRs won't be against your, your fork of it. Oh, that's cool too. Yeah, I need this in my life because I never know how to do those things. And I end up going to the pull request little you know box on GitHub and it's like, here's how to do this from the command line. And then I like go click through and I copy paste commands even after all these years. Just I do it just enough to not memorize it, but not often enough to actually memorize it. So. Good pro tip. I'm gonna I'm gonna use these. Yeah, I'm gonna look into it. It definitely it looks like it will not work out of the box with other remotes, but uh, GitHub is so much the the common practice. This will be good for a lot of folks. I just happen to be on two client projects that one is on Bitbucket and one is on GitLab. But <laughs> uh, real time feedback in I installed this uh, or put this in my Git config probably in like 2013, so it's been there for a while, and I haven't looked at the actual um, gist that that Corey Frang posted with this. And it has since been updated with a, another command SPR that is specifically for Bitbucket or stash. So mm. yeah, it does change it a little bit and you can probably deduce from how those differ, how you could add support for like GitLab or any of the other ones. Cool. Definitely click through to that gist and read the comments because people are taking this and they're modifying it for certain scenarios and tweaking it to their heart's desire. So read through those and there's probably good stuff in there for sure. What's your pro tip, K-Ball? Ooh, my pro tip. Uh, my pro tip is actually something that I think I learned. I know I learned from uh, the debugging show. Um, I think it was Nick, actually, who who did it. So, uh, But it was recently incredibly useful for me, and so I want to bring it up again. Um, and this is that in your Chrome debugger, you can insert a breakpoint that does a console log. So if you are debugging minified scripts where you can't actually modify them, uh, you can actually still insert console logs and get information. Uh, this was relevant for me recently because I was tracking down a bug that 
only showed up intermittently and only showed up in minified scripts. Um, and it was in an area where like the, the backtrace was coming from something that didn't have enough context for me to know, like I didn't have enough from the backtrace, but that function got called, you know, thousands of times, um, and only sometimes intermittently would fail. And so I, I wanted to know like, what was it being called with the times that it would fail, but inserting a, a regular breakpoint wouldn't get me there. And I couldn't insert a console log, uh, because it was on minified stuff. And if I changed it anyway, it was a mess. Uh, but this tip that as once again, I think Nick was the one who highlighted on that debugging show saved it for me because I was able to insert a breakpoint that, uh, did a console log and you do that. You, it's you use the conditional breakpoint mechanism, um, which basically lets you evaluate some JavaScript. And if it returns true, then it'll do a breakpoint. But if you put a console log in there, it's always going to return falsely, but it will just log it out. And so I would get this log of what was the function being called with. And then the last item before the the um, error would be the one that that caused the problem. And so that let me track down this intermittent issue that was happening, had been happening for months and we'd never been able to, to dig it up. And uh, that was awesome. So highly recommend conditional debugging or conditional breakpoints with a console log in there as a way to track down issues in minified code. Yeah, that's great. Was that yours, Nick? It was. <laughs> awesome. It's a virtuous circle around here. All right. So that's three sets of pro tips. Um, we're a little short on this last bit, but we went long on those first ones because we could talk about those for forever. So I think unless y'all have other stuff that you want to bring up, we can wrap up this episode and be on for the next week. Let's do it. One last stat from the JS, state of JS. Hey, uh, over 80% of people agree that JavaScript is moving in the right direction. Over 80%. A little warm fuzzy. Disclaimer, those may not be representative but still it's all good it's representative of my thinking so you're only 80 percent on that <laughs> i'm 80 sure <laughs> there's always room for improvement that is one of the interesting things too when we look at these types of surveys is like how much are they just playing into our confirmation bias and cons- you know mm-hmm. anything that confirms our priors what we believed before we're like yeah that survey man that that shows it oh no i opened up the can of worms again i'm sorry i was just trying to <laughs> And on a positive note, but yeah, I I think 100% of JS party panelists believe the JavaScript is moving in the right direction. As for JS party, we're not so sure. You tell us. You tell us. All right. That's it for this (laughs) week. Thank you for joining us with JS party, a party about JavaScript every week. We'll see you next time. Take care, y'all. Thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor. Share this show with a friend. We're just have a podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things right here at ChangeLaw because of Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers at leno.com slash changelog. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at changelog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. I'm Tim Smith, and my show Away From Keyboard explores the human side of creative work. You'll hear stories sometimes deeply personal about the triumphs and struggles of doing what you love. 
I need to give myself permission to not overdo it. If I know that the weather forecast is really good tomorrow and I don't have to do a podcast tomorrow and I could go to the beach, maybe I go to the beach. Maybe I do something that is not work. New episodes premiere every other Wednesday. Find the show at changelog.com slash AFK or wherever you listen to podcasts. I didn't realize they're actually getting out. They're giving out awards here, too. Did you see that on the state of JS? They gave out awards. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. I thought that was interesting that what well, reason was the reason. The, I can't remember which one, but I had reason award. Oh, oh yeah. Up and coming, up and coming tech that might take over. We didn't uh, get into it in more, or did, I didn't want to bring it back up, but I was looking at one of the breaks and like, you can see the, from the responses on things like um, re, Redux and other things, like how React focused this audience was. And I think Reason is also very much aligned with the React audience. Mm-hmm. It's another yeah. another Facebook tech. It's another like, like they, should, they should just call this the state of the React ecosystem or something. <laughs> mm. Yeah, because if you look at the most used React 14,400 out of 20,000 people, that's like two. That's like 75%. 75%, yeah. you know, if you have 20,000 survey takers and almost 15,000 of them use React, that's 75% of your audience using React. Which is a large number, <laughs> a large number, and then eleven thousand using Angular. So there were twenty-eight that said they used Dojo. So that's pretty awesome. Ooh-wee. <laughs> How many of those were you? Just one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now I I didn't see the trends. Like I saw they had previous years, but did they actually stack them up? Uh, Only I saw for the frameworks they show it. Because uh. huh. that to me is, I mean, okay, so if it's if the results are biased, fine. But if they're biased uh, consistently, I mean, not fine, but you know what I mean. If they're biased consistently across the years, then it's actually even more. It's at least more useful. In but terms we have of no way trend. of knowing because they don't publish how they got the results. Like they don't. Well, if they got the results the same way, they tweeted about it, and that, you know. And Maybe. the people who answered answered. I think Nick just likes the survey because TypeScript is so well placed. I don't need this for confirmation. So, <laughs> well, so that piece of data is actually well reproduced by other surveys. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. is different than some of this other data, right? Like the Angular popularity is poorly reproduced by at least one other survey that I looked at. Uh, but the TypeScript data is very well reproduced. All right, let's work on naming this show while we're all we're all here. We got a we got a nice fast uh, turnaround here. So, uh, what should we call this one? Uh, the the toughest ones are the the segmented multi-topic shows because well, it's easy if there's one big thing talked about, but when there's three and one's a recurring segment, sometimes you got to go based off of uh, something fun. Something somebody said that was funny. The one where Jay joined Slack. Hey Jay. <laughs> Thanks for joining Slack, man. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually pretty good. That's a pretty funny title, actually. 